0: Hi there. This is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, friends, good morning. And welcome to worship with us here at Eastside. If you are not here with us at the greeting at the beginning, um, if you're a guest with us, welcome. We are thrilled that you have joined us this morning. If you are a veteran or a regular attender this morning, we also would ask you along with any guests that are present to take a minute and fill out the check-in form in the comments section. It's tremendously helpful for our community as we seek to pastor and shepherd you all well in this digital season. Let us know that you're here. Fill out that form. It will not take long. This is All Saints Sunday in the life of the Western Church, and as a part of All Saints Sunday, we... In our worship service, lift up those names that you all have offered to us, of those folks in your life who have passed from their experience of this life in these bodies to to moving to life fully in the presence and the realm of God. And if you have any of those names of people in your life that have passed on, we invite you to submit those names via the the other form that you can find in the comments section for All Saints Sunday, and after the message, I'll be lifting lifting up those names as a part of our worship service. And finally, something I forgot to mention at the beginning is that this is a first Sunday, which uh, our at least temporary tradition during this season of digital worship is that we're going to be celebrating the Eucharist on the first Sundays of the month. Uh, as soon as our, our sort of regular worship service is completed, you'll be invited to, to move over to a live Zoom call where you can receive uh, the Eucharist in real time. I'll be here in the sanctuary and then you all will be spread across in your homes, your places of work or wherever you may find yourselves and we'll be blessing the elements from the sanctuary uh, wherever you are gathered together with those and we celebrate an open table at Eastside which means that if this is your very first Sunday with us and you would like to receive Holy Communion you are welcome to participate. Um, It will be helpful if you have a piece of ordinary bread, some juice of some type, or or some drink of some kind that you could um, participate with, and we hope that you'll join us. Even if you're a first-time guest this morning, we would love to have you receive Holy Communion with our community. Well, this morning we continue in the series that we have been in for the last couple of months that we've named Aspire. And this morning, for those that are paying close enough attention, you'll notice that this Sunday our theme stands a little bit to the side of or outside of the rubric that we have been using as we have been studying who it is that God calls us to become. Because we have rooted and grounded the entirety of this series in the, in the Christian and Jewish claim and belief that we are made in the very image and DNA and reality of the maker, of the creator of God. We share in life with God who made us. And we share in our calling to embody and to live into those realities and dimensions of God that we see revealed to us in our tradition, through our scriptures, through our ancient tenets of faith. And from the very act of being a creative being to God's stewarding relationship with the planet, to God's resiliency, to God's faithfulness, to God's careful attentiveness to each and every human that God has created, to our calling to be vulnerable, to be courageous. All of these, we find them rooted and mirrored in who we believe God to be. But this morning is a little bit unique in that our subject is that of making amends. And the word amend or the phrase to make amends, it assumes that there are two parties at least involved and that one party has done something to hurt or to wrong or to cause harm to another person or another party or another group of people. And as a people who rest assured that our God is a God of love and a God of perfect and eternal and um, inextinguishable love, we don't believe that God harms anyone or that God sins against any of us which means that God is not in the same situation that we are as human beings in need of making amends from time to time. But as humans, as imperfect humans aspiring to be better, to be more, to be who God calls us to be, we all have this collective reality that at some point in our lives, probably multiple points in our lives, we're gonna have the opportunity or the need or the challenge or the opening to offer amends to another person or group of people for something that we're responsible. Our reading this morning comes from way, way back in the Genesis narrative of the people of God and their lineage and how they came to be. And it's a story of Isaac's two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and Esau were fraternal twins. And in this fascinating, complex story, Hopefully, we can glean and learn from how it is that God calls God's people to live into a posture of amend-making. So friends, wherever you may find yourselves, I invite you to listen for the Word of God from Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 21. We're not going to display all the verses because there's a lot, but if you'd like to follow along in your Bible or on your device, again, we'll be beginning in Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. The Lord granted his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is to be this way, why do I live? She went on to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When Rebecca's time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they named him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because Isaac was fond of the game that Esau would bring in. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, let me have some of that red stuff, for I am famished. Therefore he was called Edom. Jacob says to his brother, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die. What good is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear it to me first. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And then, if you're following along in your text or your device, we're going to jump over to chapter 27, beginning in verse 18. The story continues. Jacob went in to his father Isaac and said, My father. And Isaac said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game so that you may bless me. Sorry, I jumped ahead too quickly, friends. I'm going to back up, actually. I don't have the full text here in my manuscript. So I'm going to tell you the first part of the story, and then we're going to go from there. Um, So continuing in chapter 27, and we are with Jacob. Okay, sorry, I'm going to back that up, and I'm just going to start back at verse 18. Jacob went into his father and said, My father, here I am. Where are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, notice what's happening, Jacob says to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn, I have done as you have told me, now sit up and eat of my game so that you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? Jacob answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. So Jacob went up to his father Isaac, who felt him, and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Now, I may not have mentioned this, but Isaac is blind by this point in his life, so he cannot see who it is who is with him. Isaac did not recognize him because Jacob's hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So his father Isaac blessed him, him being Jacob, the second born. Isaac said, are you really my son Esau? Jacob answered, I am. Then father Isaac said, bring it to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So Jacob brought it to him, and Isaac ate. Jacob brought him wine, and Isaac drank. Then his father said to him, "'Come near and kiss me, my son.' So Jacob came near and kissed his father, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, "'Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field "'that the Lord has blessed. "'May God give you of the dew of heaven "'and the fatness of the earth "'and the plenty of grain and wine.'" Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed, be everyone who curses you, and blessed, be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of his father Isaac, Esau then came in from his hunting. Esau then prepared savory food and brought it to his father. And Esau said to his father, Let my father sit up and eat of his son's game, that you may give me the blessing. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? Esau answered, I am your firstborn son, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Then who was it that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him, yes, and blessed he shall be. When Isaac or when Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and said to his father, Bless me also, father. But his father Isaac said, Your brother Jacob came deceitfully, he, he's taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and look, now he has taken away my blessing. Then Esau said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Jumping down to verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then Esau said, I will kill my brother Jacob. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Creator God, on this morning... May you take the words and the themes and the movements of this ancient text of Scripture and speak a fresh word of truth and life to us, God. Even in the dark turn of events, may we hold out for hope that something new might be birthed, that something good might come from darkness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, friends, I want to begin our time this morning by just making a very simple distinction, and that is the distinction between an apology on the one hand and amends on the other. Because if you've ever been on the receiving or the offering end of an apology or and or an amends, then you probably experientially know yourself that they're not exactly the same thing. Because an apology, an apology is verbal, right? And, and and an apology is sometimes sincere, sometimes it's less sincere, sometimes it's not sincere at all. Sometimes a simple apology is the appropriate thing, it's what you should do you're holding the door for someone and you don't see that someone else is coming in behind them and you let the door swing shut, a simple apology to that person is probably the necessary next step. Or say you're in a a foreign cultural situation or environment and you don't know that a certain way of being or posturing or phrase, phrase is offensive to that culture, you didn't know better, maybe in that case, a simple apology would be appropriate. Maybe you were really tired when you got home from work, and you forgot to turn the light off in the hallway, and your wife says, are you going to leave that light on all night? And you say, no, I'm sorry. Now, if it were just an apology, you might stay laying down in bed, right? I'm sorry I left the light on and go to sleep. But the difference, right, between an apology and an amends is that then, even though you're so comfortable, completely covered in your glorious blankets and sheets in your bed and you're exhausted from work, you get back out of bed and you go to the light switch and after you say you're sorry, you turn it off and then try to get back into bed and fall asleep because an apology and an amends is not necessarily the same thing. If you steal someone's shirt, right, or you back into their car and then you simply say, I'm sorry, probably just that's not going to quite cut it, especially if if the person who stole your shirt is wearing your shirt while they're apologizing to you for having taken the shirt, then with no offer to give it back or to pay for it, just uh, I'm really sorry I stole your shirt, but I really like it. Or if somebody backs into your car on a parking deck and leaves your bumper barely hanging on and when you go to your dash, you see that there's a card stuffed under your windshield wipers and you open it up and it's a sympathy card that says, I am so, so sorry that your bumper got backed into. I'm so sorry that I backed into your bumper. Sincerely. And then there's no name or phone number or insurance company. It's just an apology for somebody busting your bumper. That is a situation that needed not an apology primarily, but an amends. We live in a world, friends, and I don't think I'm overstating this, we live in a world where people oftentimes don't even wanna offer an insincere apology when they're clearly in the wrong. We live in a world where people like take it as like a badge of honor or something or a badge of power and strength if they refuse to ever say the words, I'm sorry, I messed up, I screwed up, I apologize. We live in a world where people don't even want to offer sometimes an insincere apology for something that was clearly their fault, let alone make amends for what they've done wrong. Make it right. Apologies at times are the appropriate and necessary things, but I would argue that amends are much more challenging and also much more of the, the, the Christian way of being in the world. Because amends, they're this attempt of the offender, the offending party making an attempt at least at trying to make right what they did wrong out in the world to try to undo, to try to heal the chaos that they brought about, to try to fix the damage, to try to mend. Our reading this morning, I kind of struggled with it because I really wanted to preach from it, but it is very long and windy, and hopefully you were able to follow it, even if I got a little bit lost in there at one point, but I think it's a fascinating text, and it, it is relatively complicated when you're looking at it from kind of a family systems theory perspective, psychologically, because we're, we're told outright in the text that Rebecca goes to prayer with God when these babies are warring in her, in her womb, and God says that the older is going to serve the younger. So Rebecca goes into this story already being told that the older will serve the younger, and then she gives birth. And then we're told that Isaac prefers Esau, which is its own kind of interesting thing, and that Rebecca prefers Jacob, which is also its own kind of interesting thing. As as my parents always tried to make it as clear as possible, they loved all of us with the same love. This text seems to imply that there were some favorites. It doesn't imply it. It actually just explicitly states it. And we're told that even before any of that, Rachel, very much so like, like Abraham's wife Sarah in the story before, Rachel's also unable to conceive, and Isaac goes to God and asks that she might conceive, and then she does. And when they're born, the first comes out Esau, we said that he's red, whatever that means, maybe he's covered in red hair, maybe he's freckled, but they name him Esau, and then Jacob. The second baby, as the nurse pulls Esau out of Rachel's womb, we're told that the second child has its hand clasped around the first child's heel as a visual to the reality that they were struggling in the womb, and they would continue to struggle with one another out of the womb. These brothers were fighting before it was time to fight, a reality that they continued to embody in our text this morning. And they took it to the level of a little bit more than just competitive bantering, I think. Because in the ancient world, Isaac's father had something that was of immense value. And this wasn't just unique to this particular story, but the, first, the firstborn, it was, a, it was a good thing in many regards to be the firstborn of an ancient family because it meant that you essentially got handed the keys to the family name, the family fortune, and they believed that... that God, or depending on what culture you're from, gods or whatever, looked favorably, favorably on the head of the household, the, the head of the family, the firstborn, and that the, the former, the, the father could hand that off, that blessing to the firstborn son. It was a big deal, a really big deal in that world even if the text itself in some ways in some places actually sort of ironically pushes against it, but it was an accepted norm that the eldest son, yes, it was a patriarchal culture, the eldest son received the family blessing and thus received the family fortune. And then the second part of the, the reading this morning Isaac is getting old. As I mentioned, his sight had already gone. His body's beginning to fail him. So he tells Esau, Esau, go catch me some live game, cook it up for me, and I want to I hand off the blessing to you. It's time. And we're told that Esau, Esau goes out to the woods to, to catch some live game, to get some game. And apparently, this was overheard by others. It gets back to Rebekah, and Rebekah calls Jacob and says, Hey, now's your chance. Your brother's out in the woods. Isaac's about to hand in the family blessing. He's blind. You can dress up as him. We'll kill a couple of the, of the sheep or the goats. You can cook those up, and we'll pretend that they're live game from, from the woods, and we're going to get you the family blessing. They, t- they decide collectively to take advantage of the situation. And who knows if Jacob pushed back or if he just was like, okay, Mom, you said so. We don't really know. Text doesn't tell us. He does what he's told. And Jacob has something that his brother is by birth set up to receive. And this is the second event where. Jacob and Esau have already had this awkward situation where Esau comes in from the field in this other story and he's apparently has run out of food hunting and Jacob, like top chef or whatever, has got like this lentil soup that smells amazing. And and what seems to pretty clearly be Esau messing around, Jacob takes seriously and gets Esau to sign over his birthright to him, which I'm sure even... Even Esau assumed Jacob wasn't being serious. And then again, in the second, the second story, Esau is out in the woods, and Jacob does something sneaky with his mother, and he dresses up as Esau, goes to his father, and receives the family blessing of the firstborn. Then Esau comes back with this game. He cooks it up, takes it to his father, and what does his father say? But who are you? I've already done this once today. <sighs> What's going on? And we're told that when Esau figures out what happened, it doesn't take him too long, he's enraged. And he's like, isn't there just a little bit of blessing left for me, Father? You gave it all to him? I can't have like like 20% or something? And Isaac says, I gave it all to your brother. And Isaac is so angry that we're told that he says, well, my father is about to die. He's old. I won't do this until my father's passed. but once he has, I am going to wring my brother's neck. And we're told that Esau, in his rage, says that he is going to murder his brother. And Rebecca, being a good mom, she says, Jacob, you need to get out of here because I don't need to lose both my sons in this. Go stay with my brother in another land. So Jacob takes off and he moves to where Rebecca's brother lives and we're told that he gets married, starts a family. And clearly the narrator wants us to see that the blessing is taking hold in Jacob's life because everything the dude touches turns to gold. All of his livestock, they just multiply and more and more and more and Jacob just has the magic touch for business and to make money and to do well, to the point where his father-in-law Laban finally hits a wall. In other words, it's, it's as though he and his father-in-law have both, to become, have both become too prosperous to, to be living together next to one another, to have everything all intermingled. And tensions begin to arise between the two of them, and ultimately Jacob says, I need to go. I need to spread my wings, and I need to, to spread out and take my family and my part of the flocks with me so he does and here's what's interesting jacob could jacob could go further from his homeland he could go lots of places the world at this point is open to jacob he's got the livestock he's got wives and children he's got everything he needs he's got essentially what would be the first the ancient world version of money he's got animals but we're told that Jacob decides to go back home. Which I find really fascinating for all kinds of reasons, not least of which is the fact that the narrator doesn't tell us that Jacob knows anything about Esau. So it be about probably like two decades later, there's these stories where Jacob has to work for his father-in-law to be able to marry Rachel, but then he ends up marrying Leah because his father-in-law is a trickster, and then he has to work seven more years to marry Rachel, and then by the time all that moves on, you know, we're at least two decades before Jacob moves his group out of Laban's land. And we're told that Jacob decides to go home, even though he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going on with Esau. He hasn't talked to Esau. He hasn't seen his brother in decades. Maybe Esau's doing well. Maybe Esau got really bitter and doubled down and he has nothing and he's a scavenger out in the woods with a bow and an arrow. We don't know. The narrator doesn't tell us. And we're told that Jacob seems to have a whole lot of internal wrestling in this period, too. There's a period where he wrestles with some sort of a a messenger seemingly from God all night long and refuses to let the messenger go until the messenger will bless him. Then there's another wrestling scene with Jacob the, the night before he meets Esau. What's gonna happen, Jacob doesn't know, and I think he's really struck with He's All of his family, he has this whole livelihood and business traveling with him, and he knows in the ancient world that could end, all end very quickly in a, in, a, in a battle of revenge if Esau had a small army in a tribal fight. So how does this story end? The narrator says, now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He's dividing the camp in case they get attacked. At least all wouldn't be taken out in one blow. He puts the maids with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And then Jacob himself went on ahead of them bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and the children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. When the maids drew near, they and their children and bowed down. Likewise, Leah and her children drew near and bowed down, and finally Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Jacob's brother Esau goes on to say, what do you mean by all this company that I met? See, Jacob had, had sent all of these huge entourages of gifts ahead of time. like Hundreds and hundreds of head of goats and of sheep and of material goods, like before Jacob even got there he was sending like incredible amounts of wealth ahead of him to his brother as offerings of peace as movements of recompense of of, of movements of of showing the spirit in which Jacob is coming to his alienated brother and Esau saying first off you've met me with like an overwhelming amount of of livestock secondly you have your entire family on their knees bowing before me what's going on here esau recognizes that this is a strange scene and what does jacob say he says to find favor with my lord esau said i have enough brother keep what you have for yourself in other words, Esau says, I don't, I don't need, I don't need your, your gifts of cattle. I don't need you all on your knees. Get up. Get up. We're brothers. And then the text goes on to tell us, no, please, Jacob says, I find favor with you. If I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand. For truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God, since you have received me with such favor. Please accept my gift that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have everything I want. So Jacob urged his brother and Esau received the gifts. And that's essentially the end of the relationship and the narrative with Jacob and Esau from there to the end of the book of Genesis. Genesis. The only other thing I believe that we're told is that Esau continues to prosper and does so well that the same kind of situation happens with Jacob and Esau living too close to one another, and Esau has to to move out with his flocks and with his people to settle an area of land so that there's enough room for all that he needs to do. But Jacob... In this really gnarly, complex story with parents' involvement and young men just trying to figure out the world and what the right thing looks like, and some really, really painful things emerging between these two brothers that just, in our world today, most often would just get... Double down on as time progressed and the alienation would grow deeper and wider and it would seem like in our world today that Jacob wouldn't go home to where his brother was but he would go the other direction not wanting to have to have that that encounter that not only Jacob felt like required his own posture of humility and apology and sincerity but also offered this incredible amount of material goods that he was giving to Esau because Jacob felt as though because he had received the birthright that everything he touched turned to gold. The ironic thing in the text is that Esau clearly too has done fine for himself and to the point where he doesn't need anything that Jacob's offering him. And it does make me wonder that when Esau asked his father Isaac, can you bless me too? If Isaac, unbeknownst to Isaac, maybe he could have. Maybe we can. Maybe in God's economy it's not limited to a firstborn or to a male offspring, but it's open to all of God's children because God wants good for all of us. But that is what we see in this text is good coming from bad, we see Jacob's decision to go home and to risk and to try to work things out with his brother. It doesn't go poorly. It actually goes really beautifully and better than he ever could have imagined. And because of that, Jacob gets a restored relationship with his twin brother. And they can move on with their lives in community. And they ultimately are able to bury their father and celebrate his life together not at war, but as friends and as companions and as brothers. So friends, I'm not saying that it's wrong to apologize. I think there are times when an apology is the acceptable thing. But if we lived in a world that more often took seriously the idea of not just saying you're sorry, but saying now, how can I, is there anything I can do to make this right? And to ask that question of people sincerely and receive their answers. And sometimes they're gonna say, no, there's probably not anything you can do. And sometimes maybe they're gonna say, yeah, there is something you could do that would help to, to restore our relationship, that would help to undo the damage. But we have to have the courage, this goes back to a couple of Sundays ago, to be willing to go to the place, to the people, to the person, and we have to have the courage to put ourselves out there in such a big way as to say, how might I make this up to you? Is there any way I can make this right? And that's that's vulnerable, friends. That's vulnerable. And that's what Jacob essentially does in this text. He opens himself up to his brother and his brother accepts him and the relationship gets a new start. And I believe, friends, that that is a gospel message and it's what we are called to in our lives today. We're not called to give up and to cut and to run and to write people off, but we're called to when we can, especially when we know that we're the ones at fault to go to that person to apologize, but to more importantly ask what it is that we can do to make it right. So friends, may it be so. In the name of the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's message, and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's East Side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.